Hello and welcome to The Adventures of Paul Temple from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. Send for Paul Temple by Francis Durbridge. Read by Alistair McGowan. Chapter 1. Conference at Scotland Yard. Superintendent Harvey and Inspector Dale, sir. All right, Sergeant, you can go. Let me have the map sometime before noon. Sir Graham Forbes, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, stood up to greet the new arrivals. He was a tall man with iron-grey hair and a sparse figure. Even the black coat and striped trousers which gave him the appearance of a city stockbroker could not conceal that his early career had been spent with the army. He contrasted strangely with the two men who now came into his office at Scotland Yard. Dale was a man of medium height and build who always seemed unhappy and helpless without his bowler hat and the umbrella, which nobody ever remembered seeing unfold. The superintendent was a full head taller. He was a man of mighty frame, whose bronzed face might have made the casual stranger mistake him for the more successful type of farmer. But he possessed a fund of wisdom and mellow humour, coupled with an astuteness that he would reveal in some urbane remark that few farmers possessed. Superintendent Harvey and Chief Inspector Dale had been placed in charge of the mysterious robberies, the size and scope of which had literally staggered the country. It was now their unpleasant task to give the Commissioner an account of yet another mysterious robbery, which had occurred in Birmingham only a few hours before. It's the same gang, sir, Chief Inspector Dale was saying. He spoke quietly, but the calm, clear note of efficiency sounded in his voice. There's no question of it. Eight thousand pounds worth of diamonds. The Commissioner looked worried. Monocle in hand, he strode backwards and forwards across the heavily carpeted room. The night watchman is dead, sir, Superintendent Harvey added. Dead? There was no mistaking the surprise in Sir Graham's voice. Uh, yes. The poor devil was chloroformed, Dale explained. I don't think they meant to kill him. According to the doctor, he was gassed during the war, and his lungs were pretty groggy. The news had not put Sir Graham in the best of tempers. This is bad, Dale, he said irritably. Bad, he repeated with emphasis. He was a new man, said Harvey. He'd only been with Sterling's a month or so. Did you check up on him? Yep. His name was Rogers. Lefty Rogers. He was working at Sterling's under the name of Dixon. The hint in the superintendent's words and the inflection of his voice was not lost on the commissioner. Had he a record? He asked. He'd a record, all right. Everything from petty larceny to blackmail, Chief Inspector Dale informed him. The commissioner grunted. Inspector Merritt was already on the job when we arrived, sir, said Harvey. Inspector Merritt? Oh, yes. The Commissioner paused. Who discovered the robbery in the first place? One of the constables on night duty, answered Inspector Dale. A man called Finlay. He noticed the side door had been forced open. At least, that's his story, he added, with a queer note in his voice. You don't believe him? No, nope, Dale replied decisively. I think he was in the habit of having a chat with Rogers or Dixon, whichever you like to call him. In fact, he almost admitted as much. The night watchman used to make coffee, and I rather think P.C. Finlay has uh, a liking for coffee. The Commissioner appeared to think over the significance of what Dale had told him. Do you think he knew Dixon was an ex-convict? he asked at last. Dale hesitated a fraction before he answered. No, I don't think so. This is the fourth robbery in two months, Dale, the Commissioner said impatiently, and took a cigarette from the small ivory box on his desk. There wasn't a mark on the safe... Inspector Dale said quietly. If it hadn't been for the other robberies, I'd have sworn this was an inside job. 
What did Merritt have to say? Asked Forbes. Dale seemed amused. He's in a complete daze, poor devil. He got some fancy sort of theory about a huge criminal organisation. I think Inspector Merritt has a rather theatrical imagination, he added, with a smile which had some slight measure of contempt behind it. You don't think we're up against a criminal organisation, then? The Commissioner asked. Good heavens, no. Criminal organisations are all very well between the pages of a novel, sir. But when it comes to real life, well, they just don't exist. Sir Graham Forbes grunted. Is that your opinion too, Harvey? He asked, turning to where Harvey was sitting on the other side of his desk. To be perfectly honest, Sir Graham, I'm rather inclined to agree with merit. Dale looked at him with obvious surprise, but Harvey continued. At first, I thought we were up against the usual crowd who were having an uncanny run of good luck, he said. But now I'm rather inclined to think otherwise. You see, in the first place, there are certain aspects of this business which, to my way of thinking, indicate the existence of a really super mind, a man with an unusual flair for criminal organisation. I know it sounds fantastic and all that, sir. I feel rather reluctant to believe it myself, but we must face the facts, and the facts are pretty grim. He paused, but Sir Graham nodded as a sign for him to continue. First, there was the case of Smithsons of Gloucester. £17,000 worth of stuff. Then there was the Leicester business. £9,000 worth. Then there was the Derby affair. £4,000. And mark you, we had the Derby shop covered. We were, in fact, prepared for the raid. And that didn't stop it from happening. Then on top of everything else, there's this affair in Birmingham. £8,000 worth of diamonds. No, Sir Graham, if we were up against the usual crowd, Benny Lever, Dopey Croman, Spilly Stetson... We'd have had him under lock and key ages ago. I firmly believe, Sir Graham, that we are up against one of the greatest criminal organisations in Europe. Harvey had been carried away by his rising excitement as he recalled the details of the mysterious robberies. Sir Graham had been listening intently, making an occasional note on a pad on his desk. A slight smile of amusement on Dale's face had given place to the utmost seriousness as Harvey continued with his dramatic recital. Where was the night watchman when this fellow, um, Finlay, discovered him? the Commissioner asked at last. In his usual spot, sir, Dale answered. He had a tiny office at the back of the shop. I suppose you questioned Finley. Good Lord, yes, sir, replied Harvey emphatically. I was with him almost an hour. Did you see the night watchman, Dale, before he died? Uh, no, sir, but Harvey did. Well, Harvey? He was pretty groggy when I saw him, the superintendent said. The doctor wouldn't let me stay above a couple of minutes. Did he say anything? Yes, said Harvey quietly. As a matter of fact, he did. Superintendent Harvey spoke strangely, and both the Commissioner and Chief Inspector Dale directed puzzled looks at him. Well, what did he say? The Commissioner demanded. It was just as I was on the verge of leaving. He turned over on his side and mumbled a few words. They sounded almost incoherent at the time. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until a minute or so later that I realised what he'd said. As he broke off, the Commissioner became more and more impatient. Well, what did he say, Harvey? Quietly, the Superintendent replied. He said, the green finger. The green finger? said Dale. Yes, but, but that doesn't make sense. Just a minute, Dale, said the Commissioner, deep in thought. You remember that man we fished out of the river about a month ago? We thought he might have had something to do with that job at Leicester. I think you found his print on part of... Dale interrupted him. Oh, yeah, Snipey Jackson. I was with Lawrence at the time we found him. The poor devil was floating down the river like an empty sack. He paused, then suddenly exclaimed, oh, I say, don't you remember? Don't you remember what he said just before he died? I'm sure I'm right. Why, he said, 
The green finger. The commissioner spoke slowly, emphasising each syllable. Yeah, repeated Dale. The green finger. The, the same as the night watchman, added Harvey. But what is this green finger? What does it mean? That, my dear superintendent, replied the commissioner with dry humour, is one of the many things we're here to find out. I don't think there's any doubt that Snipey Jackson was tied up with that Lester job, said Dale. Henderson found two of his fingerprints on one of the showcases. Yes, replied Sir Graham. I reckon that was the reason why you and Lawrence had the pleasure of fishing him out of the Thames. The people we're up against know how to deal with incompetence. That's one thing I'll say for them. Sir Graham, asked Dale, slowly, do you believe the same as Harvey and Inspector Merritt that we are up against a definite criminal organisation? Sir Graham got up and walked to the fireplace. There he stood with his back to the glowing flames while Dale and Harvey swung round in their chairs until they faced him again. For some time he said nothing. Then at last he seemed to have made up his mind. Yes, I do, Dale, he said quietly. I suppose you've seen the newspapers, Sir Graham. It was Harvey who asked the question. A faint flush spread over the Commissioner's cheeks. The subject seemed to irritate him. Yes, he snapped impatiently. Yes, I've seen them. Send for Paul Temple. Why doesn't Scotland Yard send for Paul Temple? They even had placards out about the fellow. The press have been very irritating over this affair. Very irritating. Paul Temple, said Dale thoughtfully. Isn't he the novelist chap who helped us over the Tenworthy murder? Yes. Well, he caught old Tenworthy, Dale went on. I'll say that for him. Suddenly he turned towards the superintendent. He's a friend of yours, isn't he, Harvey? I know him, said Harvey. Temple is just an ordinary amateur criminologist, said Sir Graham, with a vast amount of scorn in his voice. He had a great deal of luck over the Tenworthy affair and a great deal of excellent publicity for his novels. Superintendent Harvey was inclined to doubt this. I don't think Paul Temple exactly courted publicity, Sir Graham, he said quietly. Don't be a fool, Harvey, of course he did. All these amateurs thrive on publicity. Well, you must admit, Sir Graham, laughed Dale. We were a little relieved to see the last of the elusive Mr Tenworthy. Yes, exclaimed Sir Graham. And just at the moment I should be considerably relieved to hear the last of Mr Paul Temple. Ever since this confounded business started, people have been bombarding us with letters. Send for Paul Temple. His tones, impatient and bitter to start with, had gradually worked up into a fury. But he was prevented from going any further. As he finished his sentence, the door opened and Sergeant Leopold, his personal attendant, appeared. The Commissioner looked round, angry at being disturbed. What is it, Sergeant? he asked. The map, sir, Sergeant Leopold replied. Remember, you asked me to, uh... Oh, yes, the Commissioner interrupted him. Uh, put it on the desk, Sergeant. Sergeant Leopold cleared a space on the fully loaded desk and left the room. Instead of continuing his heated discussion, the Commissioner opened the map and spread it flat over the top of his desk. Now, gentlemen, he said as the two officers stood up and bent over it, this is a map covering the exact area in which so far the criminals have confined their activities. He pointed to the circles and other marks which had been neatly inscribed in the map room at Scotland Yard. You'll see the towns which have already been affected, Gloucester, Leicester, Derby and Birmingham. He pointed to each of the four places in turn. The map, as you see, starts at Nottingham, and comes as far south as Gloucester, covering, in fact, the entire Midlands. The Commissioner stood back from the table. He flourished his hand with all the emphasis he might have used in addressing a large and important gathering. Gentlemen, somewhere in that area are the headquarters of the greatest criminal organisation in Europe. That organisation must be smashed.
Chapter 2 Paul Temple The press of the country had seized on the idea of a mysterious gang holding the Midlands in its grasp and were making the most of it. Both Spanish and Chinese war news had begun to grow wearisome. Moreover, news editors found it both difficult and tedious to try to follow the latest moves. Only an occasional heavy bombardment, the capture of a big city, or the sinking of a British ship, could now be sure of reaching the front pages. The mere killing of hundreds of men a day had long ceased to be news. There had not even been a really good murder story for months, and editors were falling back on such hardy annuals as Gretna Green and The Cat for their very large and strident headlines. Then, suddenly, out of the blue, the Midland Mysteries arrived. The circulations of the evening papers immediately reached heights no national or international crisis could produce. Special investigators made their special investigations and produced lengthy summaries of what they had not been able to find out. Articles appeared by well-known psychologists, judges, the chairman of the Howard League for Penal Reform and Mr George Bernard Shaw. Every newspaper produced different theories and suggested different methods of apprehending the criminals. One ran a competition for readers' solutions. It was won by Mr Ronald Garth, a Battersea bricklayer, who was convinced in no very certain grammar or spelling that the crimes were a put-up job and part of a new attempt to foster interest in ARP. He received a cheque for ten shillings and sixpence. On one point, however, all the newspapers were agreed. The urgent necessity of sending for Mr Paul Temple. Send for Paul Temple became almost a national slogan. His name appeared on almost every poster in the city. His photograph was blazoned from the fronts of buses. Scotland Yard remained quiet and merely writhed in exquisite agony. They did not enjoy the Send for Paul Temple campaign. Nor did they enjoy reading the letters, which reached them by the hundred every day, instructing them in the public's interest to send for Paul Temple. All this publicity, however, was not without its value, for booksellers very quickly reported high sales for Paul Temple's detective stories, and one of the more lurid of Sunday newspapers, hoping to scoop the rest, commissioned an article by Mr Temple on the growing rat menace in Britain and paid him the record sum of £1,000 for it. Unhappily for them, on the day it appeared, another equally lurid Sunday newspaper published an article by Mr Temple on the growing spy menace in Britain, which he had written five years before, and for which he received £4.14 shillings and sixpence, after his agent, overjoyed at selling the ancient manuscript, had deducted his usual 25% commission. It had taken Paul Temple six years to rise from the dark obscurity of an unknown author to the limelight of a popular novelist. On coming down from Oxford, he applied for a newspaper job and eventually became a reporter on one of the great London dailies. After 12 months of writing everything from gossip paragraphs to sports reports, he became interested in criminology and eventually started to specialise in crime stories. While still in Fleet Street, he tried his hand at drama, and in 1929 his play, Dance Little Lady, was produced at the Ambassador's Theatre. It ran for seven performances. In a fit of irritation caused through the unexpected failure of his play, Paul Temple started his first thriller. Death in the Theatre appeared early the following year. It achieved a phenomenal success, and Paul Temple promptly left Fleet Street. Oddly enough, Temple very quickly acquired a reputation as a criminologist. From time to time he had been asked by popular papers to investigate some sensational crime on their behalf. Thus, although it is not generally known, it was Paul Temple who was really responsible for the arrest of such notorious criminals as Tony Seleppi, Guy Grinsman and Tessa Jute. On the subject of the present crimes, however, Paul Temple refused to be drawn. To the reporters who called to see him, he was invariably out of town. No telephone number or address could possibly be given. He was thought to be travelling in the Ukraine. 
Several energetic reporters, however, went so far as to set up camp stools outside the big block of service flats in Golders Green, where he stayed when in London. The only vacant flat in the building had already been engaged on a year's lease at a rental of £460, inclusive, by the Queen Newspaper Syndicate of America. Meanwhile, other reporters and photographers patrolled the grounds of Bramley Lodge, Paul Temple's country house, not far from Evesham. Bramley Lodge was an extensive old Elizabethan house, which Paul Temple had secured at a very low figure owing to its poor condition. He had managed to have it partially rebuilt, without completely ruining the beautiful façade, the old oak beams and other ancient features of the building. In addition, central heating had been installed, tennis courts laid, and a rather delightful rockery planned. Altogether, Paul Temple had contrived to make Bramley Lodge a very comfortable place. All these alterations had done nothing to spoil it, and Paul Temple was often asked by artist friends and strangers, as well as photographers, for permission to make some permanent record of the lovely old mansion. Only to surrealists did he refuse. The house was set in the middle of a large park, with a drive fringed by luxurious old beech trees to the main Warwick Road below. About the exact size of his grounds, Temple felt rather dubious. He'd bought a half-inch ordnance survey map only a few weeks before, and by dint of laborious calculation and lengthy use of compasses and dividers, discovered that he possessed 85 acres of very pleasant land. But his confidence in his own mathematical knowledge was not exactly great. When I was at rugby, my marks for mathematics used to be 8% with the most monotonous regularity, he used to tell his friends. He had not yet remembered to pass the problem on to more mathematically-minded friends, and as, in addition, all the papers concerning the estate were locked away somewhere, he had only very vague ideas about his own property. On the Monday, two days after the conference at Scotland Yard, Dr Milton and his niece, Diana Thornley, neighbours of the novelist, had succeeded in penetrating the cordon of newspapermen and were now sitting in the comfortable drawing-room of Bramley Lodge. They had just enjoyed an excellent dinner, prepared under the very personal supervision of Temple himself, for he quite rightly prided himself on his culinary knowledge. In fact, he used to boast that his knowledge of West End restaurants was second to none. Certainly he knew almost every chef in London well enough to spend many a half-hour in wistful contemplation of the mysterious processes to which they subjected the raw materials of the meal he was later to enjoy. The knowledge he thus gained would go to benefit his guests. This evening, Dr Milton and Diana Thornley had certainly appreciated the meal that had been set before them. Now they were sipping their coffee before a great fire of coal and holly. The men in deep brown leather armchairs missed Thornley on a stool by the inglenook. A heavy Turkish carpet softened the room and the comfortable old furniture seemed to impart an intimate, sociable atmosphere. The vivacious, dark-haired and dark-eyed girl of 27, who looked as if she had Spanish blood in her, contrasted strangely with the two men yet she bore them many similarities in temperament. Impetuous, yet firm-lipped, she was a girl of hard character, who looked as if she enjoyed life to the full. That she was not married was a continual source of wonder, and even anxiety, to the country people in the district. Her uncle showed little family likeness to Diana Thornley, but then, as Dr Milton explained, she took after her mother, not her father, who was Milton's brother. He had a wiry figure, which looked as if it had seen hardship and could easily face more. He rarely seemed completely at his ease. He told Temple he had had an extensive practice in Sydney, and that he had done some exploration into the great deserts of Western Australia. Now he had come back to the home country to retire. He seemed very little over fifty, and was probably younger. Very young to retire, reflected Temple, but he seemed to have enough money to spend, and always enough to do to obviate boredom. Temple himself was a modern embodiment of Sir Philip Sydney, courtly in manners, 
a dominant character without ever giving the impression of dominating. He was equally at home in the double-breasted dinner jacket he was now wearing, the perfect host entertaining his guests, or in coarse, loose tweeds striding along the country lanes. Nobody was surprised to learn that he preferred rugby football to cricket, although he had played both. Now, at the age of 40, he was past the violence of the game, but still rarely missed an international match. He'd done well in the pack for his college team at Oxford, but, strangely enough, he had never got past the selection committee for the varsity side. The fact that he had never secured his blue was a constant source of regret. He had a habit of leisurely movement, and retained traces of what in his younger days had been a very pronounced Oxford drawl. On the other hand, he felt that here was a man whose bulk would be no great hindrance to action, and that in a fight it was as well to have him on your side. Conversation had turned gradually to crime, as it often did in that drawing-room. They were discussing the notorious Tenworthy case, and Temple's personal contacts as distinguished from his abstract interest in crime. A man called Tenworthy murdered his wife by gently pushing her over Leeton Cliffs in Cornwall, the novelist reminded Dr Milton. That was two years ago, the beginning of my active interest in criminology. You must have taken an interest in the case from the very beginning, said Diana Thornley. Surely you just didn't make a lot of Charlie Chan observations. Her uncle looked at her with a kindly and tolerant, yet nonetheless broad amusement. Don't be silly, he admonished her. Mr Temple is far too modest. I remember reading about the Tenworthy affair. He made several startling discoveries which the police had entirely overlooked. As a matter of fact, they arrested a young man called Roberts, who had nothing to do with the case, if I remember rightly. The details of the case were coming back to the two men now. It had caused a tremendous stir at the time. The newspapers had started a Release Roberts campaign. Indignation meetings had been held over the country, and questions had been asked in the House of Commons. Young Roberts was finally set free and awarded £1,000 as compensation. Yes, Len Roberts, said Paul Temple, in a soft voice. By Timothy, that boy had a near shave. Well, no wonder all the newspapers are saying send for Paul Temple, smiled Diana Thornley, with an excitement that sent a glow of colour into her cheeks. Her host laughed. The newspapers, like your uncle, are inclined to exaggerate my ability, Miss Thornley, he said. I'm afraid they see in me what is technically described as good copy. I've been reading a great deal about these robberies, said Dr Milton. They really are remarkable, you know. Four robberies in six months, and all within the same area. I'm not one for grumbling, but I do really think it's about time the police started to show some results. Now look at that business in Birmingham only this week. The police haven't even got a single clue. Yes, said Diana softly. The night watchman was murdered too. Murdered? asked her uncle, with surprise in his voice. I didn't know that. Oh, apparently he was chloroformed and didn't recover from it, explained his host. I have a sort of feeling that was an accident. Yes, said Milton after a moment's thought, his face set in a deep frown. Perhaps you're right. We shall soon start thinking we've settled down in the wrong country, Diana, he added, laughing. They discussed the Midland mysteries just as in a hundred thousand other homes in the country they were being discussed whilst jewellers and diamond merchants tested their safes and burglar alarms, taking the latest precautions of every kind, before nervously rubbing their hands and hoping the insurance companies wouldn't be too argumentative when the disaster inevitably arrived. Uh, Mr Temple, started Diana, suddenly. Yes? What do you really think about these robberies? Do you think it's the work of an organised sort of gang, or do you think... Oh, come, Diana, interrupted her uncle with what was probably intended to be an indulgent smile. Don't start troubling Mr Temple with a lot of newspaper nonsense. Both men began to laugh. 
To Temple, at least, it was amusing to see this lovely girl displaying so sudden and rather startling an interest in the Midland mysteries. And Diana was so very serious as well as persistent. You know, Mr Temple, she said, I should really like to know what you think about it all. Well, Miss Thornley, if I were Scotland Yard... And Paul Temple paused. Yes, she exclaimed eagerly. If I were Scotland Yard, he repeated with dramatic emphasis. Then, with an amused twinkle in his eye, he added, I should send for Paul Temple. They were still laughing when the door opened, and Price, Paul Temple's manservant, came in. Superintendent Harvey of Scotland Yard would like to see you, sir, he said. Chapter 3. Death of a Detective His words cut off the laughter in that drawing-room with strange abruptness. For a moment, no one spoke. The coincidence was too striking. All three sensed drama in the air, yet Temple and Harvey were old acquaintances, if not friends. Harvey had often called on the novelist to discuss some complicated case or other over a tankard or two of beer, and often enough Harvey was brought near a solution while Temple was provided with material for yet another of his detective stories. Their acquaintance dated from Temple's newspaper days, when he had once been called on to interview the detective. After that, they had often pooled their knowledge on some case both were investigating and discussed possibilities together. Temple's own peculiar logic, if logic it could be called, often saw the shortcut to a solution, while Harvey was still lost in side paths. Whenever Temple was in town, the two would explore Soho together, both its better places of eating and its less reputable clubs, Harvey not caring for the recondite forms of continental cooking and infinitely preferring a good bloody steak, but sacrificing himself to Temple's tastes for the sake of his company. Then they would sit through a show or go into Hoxton or the Elephant and Castle areas to hear the latest gossip among the criminal fraternity. Nevertheless, this visit was unexpected and almost unprecedented. Superintendent Harvey, said Temple softly. All right, Price. Show him in. General introductions were effected, and Harvey very soon found himself a deep armchair into which he sank with a sigh of relief. He lit one of his host's cigars before explaining that, feeling in urgent need of a break, he was taking a fortnight's holiday. He was staying near Evesham, and had taken the first opportunity of calling on his old friend. The doctor laughed. So glad this isn't a professional visit, Superintendent. Milton and Temple lit fresh pipes and talked aimlessly for uh, half an hour or so, until Diana Thornley suddenly suggested it was time to leave. Uh, no, really, Mr Temple, exclaimed Dr Milton when his host started to protest. Uh, Diana's right, I never like to be later than 10.30 if I can possibly help it, and it'll take us at least a quarter of an hour. Uh, very well, Doctor, replied his host. But don't let the inspector frighten you away. Diana Thornley began to laugh. It does look rather like a guilty conscience, doesn't it? she exclaimed. As the door of the drawing-room closed, Superintendent Harvey walked slowly over to the sideboard, thoughtfully poured himself out a whisky, touched the lever of a soda-water siphon, then returned to his seat. I say, he started as Temple came back into the comfortably warm drawing-room. Who did you say that fellow was? Which fellow? pondered his host. Oh, Dr Milton. He's a retired medico. He bought Ashdown House about six months ago. You'll probably remember the place. Used to belong to Lord Snaresden. The detective frowned. Thought I'd seen him before somewhere, he said uneasily. You've probably seen his photograph, the novelist explained. He's only been in this country since last September. He was a specialist in Sydney, I believe, or somewhere like that. Rather abruptly, Temple changed the topic of conversation. Well, what brings Superintendent Harvey to Bramley Lodge? he asked. 
It did not need much of the acumen Temple normally kept so carefully hidden to realise that the real reason was the disturbing series of jewel robberies which Harvey was investigating. During the last six months, nearly £50,000 worth of diamonds have been spirited away from under our very noses, said Harvey quietly. And you can take it from me, Temple, this is only the beginning. We're up against something we've never even experienced before in this country. A cleverly planned, well-directed criminal organisation. Temple smiled at his earnestness. Oh, I know it sounds fantastic, the detective rejoined. I know just what you're thinking, but it's the truth, Temple. You can take it from me. It's the truth. Does Sir Graham know that you've come to see me? Temple asked. Harvey was slightly embarrassed by the question. Sir Graham did not like outsiders, least of all the outsiders did he like the man the newspapers and their readers were advising him to consult. I thought that with you being in the actual district, Harvey was saying apologetically, we might, uh, well, sort of, uh, Temple came to his rescue, sort of have an unofficial chat about the matter, is that it? Harvey apologised. After all, a dilettante or connoisseur in criminology could hardly be expected to be officially asked for help by the Chief Commissioner. Nevertheless, Harvey's mind had begun to whirl slightly and he had decided to benefit by a little of his friend's unofficial clear thinking. True, he possessed some scattered facts and a few suspicions, but there was as yet no path for him to follow. He had ploughed his way through trees and bracken to find one and had only succeeded in entangling himself the more. There was a chance that Temple, with that uncanny foresight of his, might spot the way. He began to outline in detail what he knew of the Midland mysteries, concluding with the recent Birmingham robbery. Tell me, Harvey, asked Temple, did you see the night watchman on the Birmingham job, the fellow who died? Yes, Harvey replied. His name was Rogers. He was an ex-con. Did he say anything before... I only saw him for a few seconds, the detective interrupted. The doctor wouldn't let me stay any longer, but whilst I was there, he said very quietly, the green finger. At the time, I thought the poor devil was delirious and talking nonsense. Now, however, I'm not so sure. What makes you say that? Well... About a month ago, Dale fished a fellow out of the Thames, a man by the name of Snipey Jackson. He was wanted in connection with the Leicester job. The poor devil was practically gone when they dragged him into the boat, but Dale is absolutely certain he said exactly the same words as the night watchman. The green finger, repeated Temple quietly. And suddenly he looked up. Where are you staying, Harvey? Harvey explained that he had booked a room at the Little General a small inn about two miles from Bramley Lodge. Oh, don't be silly, old boy, laughed Temple. You must stay here. We'll pop round to the inn for your luggage. Price was sent to start the car, and ten minutes later the two men were swinging their way down the drive, the brilliant headlamps of Temple's long black coupé cleaving a passage between the great beaches that flanked the drive. There was no great hurry, and Temple did not drive fast. It was fairly cold, and he kept the roof of the car closed, although both men had opened their windows and were savouring the keen night air. An exhilarating experience, after the warm confinement of the drawing-room. Although the inn was only some two miles away, it was almost ten minutes before they arrived. Neither said very much beyond a non-committal word or so about the rabbits which scurried out, drawn by the car's headlamps, or about the smooth, fast-running of Temple's car, and the easy way she crested the long slope leading up to the little general. Harvey got out of the car alone, explaining that he would only be absent long enough for him to collect his bags and break the news of his sudden departure to the innkeeper. Temple remained in the car, drawing away at his great briar. He heard the door of the inn close and fancied he heard Harvey talking. 
Two or three minutes passed by. Then Temple heard footsteps crunching in the gravel by the roadside. Somebody was approaching the car from the back. Through the driving mirror, he could see a man gradually coming nearer. He turned round and recognised the burly figure of Ben Stewart, owner of Battington Farm and a near neighbour of Temple's. He stopped at the window of the car. Hello, Mr. Temple. What be you doing here this time of night? Hello, Ben. Replied Temple. I'm just waiting for a friend of mine. How's the farm? The two chatted for a little while about the farm, market prices, and foot and mouth disease. Although Temple lived in the country, he knew little more about farming than the average townsman. But he was genuinely interested in it, as he was in almost everything else. And Ben Stewart was one of many who appreciated an attentive audience. Finally, the farmer accepted one of Temple's best cigars. Sure, make the house smell proper Christmassy. This will, he chuckled, and vanished into the night. Temple had switched the car lights off, and for a moment or two sat peering ahead into the darkness, vainly endeavouring to follow the farmer's path. He wondered vaguely why Harvey should be so long. It was actually getting a little colder, he thought, and closed the windows of the car. The only light came from the inn. Two of the windows were lit up. One that was evidently the window of the bar parlour next to the door, and one upstairs. The crescent of the moon just revealed through the mist the existence of the poplars by the side of the road. Certainly, time Harvey was down with those bags, thought Temple. A sudden piercing shriek cut into his thoughts. A moment later, the inn door was flung open, and the excited figure of little Horace Daly, the innkeeper, appeared. For an instant, he stood still, silhouetted against the brilliant light from within. Then, with a second cry of astonishment, he darted forward. I say, Mister, he started, his voice almost unintelligible in the sudden pitch of overwhelming emotion. Is that fellow a friend of yours, the chap who came into the inn about? Uh... Yes, Temple cut him short. What's happened? My God, it's awful! It's awful! What's happened? Repeated Temple, a sudden note of apprehension in his voice. He shot himself. Temple looked at the innkeeper through the darkness. There was a queer look in his eyes. Shot himself, he repeated slowly. No, no, that can't be true. 